My name is Sophie. I suffered from fibromyalgia and extreme fatigue syndrome for about 24 years. Today I'm fully healthy. And now I would like to pass on everything I've learned about health and healing and more to support those who are still on a journey. And this is why I create this documentary series and podcast, The Puzzle of Healing. Hi everyone, welcome to the next episode of The Puzzle of Healing. Today I talk to Ashok Gupta. He is the director of the Gupta program and a neuroplasticity researcher. Ashok was a patient himself. He suffered from ME and through his own research managed to cure himself. And out of that, born was the Gupta program. A program that claims to be able to help with many chronic conditions. After I had conducted this really beautiful interview and I have to still say I'm very inspired and if I would have still been ill, I would have absolutely given this program a shot. But after I've done the interview, I was made aware of some criticism I would like to address. The criticism was this. There are many training programs out there. They promise certain outcomes, they are expensive, and they lack scientific evidence. And therefore, some people say they're not right to support, to publish, to talk about, to promote. And to a certain extent, I get that criticism. But here's what I'm thinking. Unfortunately, we don't have an answer. Unfortunately, we cannot go to our GP and they can tell us what to do to get rid of a lot of those chronic conditions. At least that's definitely true for fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue as what I battled with for 24 years. So should we ignore private attempts to resolve this issue? I think we shouldn't. Yes, it costs money, but of course, if somebody dedicates their life to kind of creating a program to help people, they must make a living somehow. Every therapist takes money. Even every GP earns money with what they do, not necessarily directly from us in a way that we can feel it, but it is a job after all. Do they overpromise? I can't answer that question for sure. I would need to ask many, many, many patients to get to an answer. But I did look him up, obviously, before I had this interview and I found a lot of positive feedback online. I found a lot of feedback that said they got significantly better. I did not find that many, that many feedback that really said they were fully, fully cured. But I also did find those. But the predominant, like the majority of people I found said they got a lot better and it was worth doing. The next thing, there starts to be a bit scientific evidence. It was published 2020 and we are talking about it in this interview and hopefully this is just the beginning of much greater research efforts. So yes, it is a private sec sector, but if this private sector could actually help support the evidence we need to find an answer, I think this is absolutely worth talking about. But I absolutely agree, everybody has to make up their mind about it and has to look at all sides and then decide what's good for you. This study found that within eight weeks, there was significant pain reduction in fibromyalgia. It was an independent study. Of course, I just start, started really studying psychology, so I have an idea of how to read a study. But of course, there are limits to my knowledge on how to critically analyze, anal analyze it. So if there is anything I should have seen and I missed it, like, please let me know. But from what I read, I can say this sounds really, really promising. And that's why I'm really excited about presenting you with this episode. Also, before I let you go to actually enjoy this interview, my channel is there to offer you puzzle pieces. Because even though there is no definite cure, 100% guaranteed from anywhere, 
I believe that healing is a puzzle anyway, and that there are many different elements that can contribute to our health and well-being. And my job, my reason for doing this, is that I want to introduce as many puzzle pieces to you as I can. And it's up to you to decide which ones you want to give a go. Cool. That is all I have to say before I let you go to enjoy this wonderful interview. And again, oh, one thing, sorry, <laughs> keep forgetting things. In this case, there is even a money back guarantee. So if you say, hmm, I'm not such a fan of paying a lot of money if I'm not sure if I can get cured. Well, if it doesn't help you, you can get your money back. And I think that is really the really good thing. You're not losing anything. And that was my decision. Like I was critical. I was critical about the whole marketing aspect. Ashok knows this. <laughs> so, um, but after really looking into it, I think I would give it a shot. And I hope you can take something away from it that does help you. And if you want to give it a shot, at the moment you have nothing to lose. You can get your money back if it doesn't help. But if it is for you and if that's the thing that can help, I don't want to hold it back from you. So having said all that, I really hope you enjoy this interview and I hope that you feel inspired after. I surely was. Enjoy. Hi Ashok, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks Sophie. Yes, uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm very excited about this episode. Mm, Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit so that everybody knows who I'm talking to today? Uh, yeah, so uh, my name is Ashok Gupta. I'm the founder of the Gupta program, uh, which is a brain retraining and neuroplasticity limbic retraining program for chronic illnesses such as ME/CFS and fibromyalgia. So I'm the director of the clinic. And uh, yeah, we're a global e-clinic, so we treat uh, patients all over the world. That's fantastic. And you've been a patient yourself. Do you want to talk a little bit about like, how did this program come about? Because you have a very interesting journey and in how this all happened. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it started for me, you know, around 25 years ago, where I actually suffered from ME and chronic fatigue syndrome when I was at university. And I never had it really severely to the point that I was bed bound, mm -hmm. but I certainly had it to a moderate to severe level where sometimes I had to crawl to the bathroom, sometimes I had no energy. Oh, wow. If I opened a book, I literally couldn't absorb any of the words in the book, you know. And as you can imagine, as a young person, I just had that brick wall in front of me that I didn't know what life was going to be like now because yeah. doctors told me there's no cure there's nothing you can do about it you're going to have this forever etc etc it's a very bleak outlook and that spurned a quest for me to say i want to understand what causes this condition mm -hmm. and i want to figure this out so i can heal myself and then i've made a, a promise with the universe that if i manage to heal myself I spend the rest of my life trying to help other people um, heal from these conditions mm -hmm. and so i did a lot of research into brain neurology physiology uh, lots of other research into CFS and ME. Mm -hmm. And I came up with a hypothesis in 1999, which was published online, in, uh, sorry, published in Medical Hypothesis Journal in 2002. Oh, wow. And then I said, and then, yeah, so from that research, uh, using some ad hoc brain retraining, I managed to get myself 100% better. I've been 100% better since. And I've set up a global clinic where we treat people all over the world. So in 2007, we published the first neuroplasticity program which was a video program, which was on DVD. And uh, then in 2019, we revamped the entire program. Uh, so to encompass many more conditions, mm. um, which is now the, the Gupta program. And um, when you say you studied, so did you study something subject related? Like what did you study and how, how did your illness start? Do you know what triggered it? Uh, yes. Yeah, so in terms of my condition, uh, I mean, many people will be familiar with these types of stories where mm. I went abroad, I went to India, 
and I got some kind of stomach bug. And I was already quite drained at the time because I'd been, yeah, burning the candle at both ends at university. I was eating badly. I was not sleeping properly. I was, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so there was a lot of stress, mental, physical, emotional stress. And then I got this stomach bug in India. I came back to university and I just continued to go downhill mm. uh, rather than recovering from the stomach bug. And that's what triggered uh, my condition. They never, they did, I did all the tests you could possibly imagine, uh, yeah. but they couldn't find anything wrong. And um, yeah, and then in terms of my studying, it was uh, self-taught in that sense. So I read a lot of books on neurology. I studied a lot of neurological uh, research and papers, which luckily at that time were beginning to be available online. And that's, yeah, that's how I learned more about it. And what was your actual degree? Which you then did you abandon it? Did you complete your actual degree? Or I managed to complete it. Uh, my undergrad was in economics. Oh, interesting! Something completely different then. Yeah, although interestingly, economics is about cycles, and there's a lot of psychology within economics. You know, because it's a study of human behavior in the, the monetary sense. And so, uh, I certainly picked up a lot of information about how cycles work, how business cycles work, and how they also operate in the brain, those types of cycles, uh, and also in physics as well. Um, so yeah, I think there's some fascinating uh, links there. Yeah, and how long was your journey once you started deciding? It's, it's, I think it's really brave and really awesome that you said like, I don't care what doctors say, like I can get rid of this. <laughs> so how long was that journey? I think that took me around a year. Um, in terms of, fast. yeah, between six months to a year. Uh, and this was with, you know, no medical training, no yeah. actual treatments that I was using, but just for my own research, my own hy hypothesis, understanding what was going on in the periphery of my consciousness. Uh, remember, we don't, and let's be very careful throughout this interview, we're never saying that it's in the mind, but we are saying it's in the brain which yeah. are two different things in the unconscious brain. And normally we have no control, but from my hypothesis, I thought, actually, I don't have control. I don't have awareness of this, but there is a way that I could potentially manipulate this unconscious process and retrain the limbic system to be able to come back to health. Yeah. Maybe for everyone who's not so familiar with like um, the term hypothesis, can you describe like what, what does that mean? <laughs> what is a hypothesis? Sure. So hypothesis in, I suppose, in a medical sense, It's a theory. It's a way of explaining uh, the world. So it might be our physiological processes, our mental processes, and then it conforms into a theory. And then that, a theory has to be tested. Yeah. So until it's tested, it remains as a theory or a hypothesis. Yeah, and yours have been tested just last year. So we definitely, I would definitely want to talk about that study uh, in a little bit. But before we get to that, so. I think that's distinguishing, you just said, like, it's in your brain, not in your mind. I think that's super important because I have been accused of, well, you just make this up. This is psychological and many, many patients have. And if when I was still ill, that would be the point of me shutting you out and be like, yeah, not another one of those. So let's spend a bit more time on that. Like, what is really the difference? Because you're not saying this is a psychological issue. You're saying this is a physical issue, right? Yes. And I think the key point, first of all, that's confusing all of this is the way that mainstream medicine is set up is to distinguish those two 100 percent. It's mm. either 100 percent psychological or 100 percent physical. Now, the brain and the body do not operate like that at all. So yeah. I'll give an example. If we have flu, right now, is flu purely a physical thing? How do we feel when we have flu? We feel down. We feel awful and we feel demotivated yeah. that's deliberate because the system says right you need to rest 
So I'm going to give a physiological response, which is your immune response, and I'm going to give an emotional response because I want you to rest and not feel motivated to do anything yeah. so that you're able to heal. So every physical condition has an emotional and mental component. Every mental and emotional condition has a physiological component. Mm -hmm. So we know depression, for instance, is not purely emotional at all. There is uh, about 50% of patients is actually caused by inflammatory systems yeah. in the body over responding. So it's first of all, medicine itself has artificially separated those two areas. Secondly, traditionally, when we think of psychological conditions, we're saying that the emotions and the thoughts are somehow either creating the condition um, or um, those emotions and thoughts are, uh, as it were, perpetuating it or in some way, someone's making it up. It's yeah. not real. There isn't actually any fatigue in the body. It's not real at all. And so that's what we call a, a kind of, you know, a psychological condition. But what we're saying is this is a real physical condition, mm -hmm. which is beyond someone's conscious control. So therefore, it can't be psychological. Yeah. Also, like if you have extreme fatigue that you might get depressed is then the second thing that comes on top of the dip, on top of the fatigue as well. Because like a lot of people with extreme fatigue suffer from depression, but because the physical illness. <laughs> Yeah, and these are overlapping layers. So as yeah. you say, there's a core physical illness, and then you may have a layer of depression or a layer of anxiety. Mm -hmm. But that depression and that anxiety is not the cause of the condition. Yeah. Now, of course, it certainly doesn't help the condition, but it's not the root cause of it. And that's the key thing that we want to emphasize again and again. And in neuroplasticity, a great example of this is phantom limb pain. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, there are war veterans who come back and they've had to have a leg amputated. Now, when that leg is amputated, their brain still responds as if the leg is still there. Yeah. Yeah. That is not a psychological process. That is a physiological brain process where signals are coming from this space where the leg doesn't exist, coming into the brain and telling the brain there is a leg there and it is hurting. Yeah. yeah, And no one would call that psychological because that would be completely unfair. The, the leg yeah. has physically been removed. <laughs> But through specialized and repetitive um, rehabilitation processes, they're able to train the brain to realize that that limb no longer exists. And therefore, those neuronal networks can be shut down. Yeah. Now, can you see? That is the difference between saying this is CBT or psychological, which is, you know, if we just shift the thought patterns and uh, be positive then that should be you know that should fix it mm. no yeah this is rehabilitation this is uh something that's very very different and uh yeah i hope that everyone really understands the difference because it's it, we have been sold a lie by mainstream medicine that yeah. somehow these are separate aspects of medicine but they totally aren't yeah that and i really wish that doctors would be better at explaining that to their patients to say like also like if you if something is stress like a causing stress what that does to the body because like even a stress response is very physical like we have more cortisol we have more adrenaline and that does something to the body as well so i wish a lot that the medical world would find actually better ways of communicating all those complex topics yes and the way i'd love to reframe all of this is they are protective responses Yeah, yeah, you're right. So our you're bodies right. are evolutionary machines. You know, if you want to take the kind of biggest question of all, why are we here? You know, the biggest <laughs> question of all. From a, not from a philosophical perspective, because we could spend the next two hours talking about that. But from a physiological perspective, we are here because this nervous system, this immune system is incredible. It has evolved over millions of years through different animals to get to us where we are right now, to help us ensure the survival of our genes to the next generation. Yeah. yeah. So th 
protection is the number one priority of the brain and survival. So when we think of an emotional response, like a fight or flight response, or an immune response, fighting mm -hmm. off a virus or bacterial infection, we artificially separate those two things. But as far as the brain is concerned, this is to ensure survival. Yeah. It is a protection mechanism, a defense mechanism. And whether it's physiological, immunological, biological, psychological, the brain doesn't differentiate. It's yeah. just to ensure survival. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so, and that is all what you combined in your program. Do you, should we, is there anything else you want to cover, or just want to cover before we go into the program or should we head over and you start explaining how it works, what you need to do in order to- well, I'd love to explain the hypothesis first, yes, actually, because I think it. that's, a, that's a, a really good starting point. Yes. So we've said that the brain uh, focuses on survival. Uh, which is its number one priority. So it case, so when someone has MECFS, fibromyalgia, chemical sensitivities, mold, what the brain is doing is saying, I care more about protection than I do about you feeling healthy, mm. which makes complete sense, right? So this yeah. is the, the right biological thing for the brain to do. So how do these illnesses start? I think that's really fascinating, the underlying reasons for it. So in our hypothesis, we believe that um, there is uh, three different factors. So the number one is genetic. So definitely there seems to be some kind of genetic factor, but we have to remember our genes are not our destiny. They are simply a risk factor. Yeah. So we can have mm -hmm. genetic. There can also be risks in terms of our upbringing that sets the kind of factory setting of our brain in terms of how sensitive and responsive it is. Mm -hmm. and there are two main things that trigger an illness, a chronic illness. So number one is chronic anxiety or acute stress. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And most people, if you ask them when they first got the chronic condition, they often will describe maybe six months or a year or a few months where they felt quite stressed for, for whatever reason. Not even emotional stress. It could be really physical, a lot of physical stress at that time, mm -hmm. which triggered the condition. And it's combined with a physical trigger. So if I just share um, a slide here, um, then you can see um, the, uh, the, the hypothesis here. So I'll just sh share this yeah. here. Mm -hmm. So we can see here that there are these three factors, those predisposing factors, genetic, upbringing. Number two, acute or chronic psychological stress, or it can, as I said, be physiological stress. And number three, combined with a virus and bacterial infection, in this case of MECFS and long-haul COVID, which we're now treating as well. Yeah. Often it's a physical injury or a local pain syndrome, in the case of fibromyalgia which then generalizes to the whole body. Uh, chemical sensitivities or mold is exposure to uh, a chemical or a mold. And then many other conditions which are linked to this, you know, electrical sensitivities, POTS, all of these kind of things can trigger what mm. then happens. So I believe that the brain, when we're under a lot of stress, I, I, I want to give a good example. Let's take the example of COVID-19 because we're all in that uh, awareness right now. Mm. So somebody contracts COVID-19 whilst under a lot of stress. And in this, in this last year with the pandemic, there's been high levels of anxiety and stress about it. Certainly if you've got COVID-19, it's natural to feel stress because you're seeing yeah. everything in the media and everything like that. And then what happens is the brain makes a decision. Oh dear, I'm stressed. And in the field of psychoneuroimmunology, we know that when we're stressed, the effectiveness of the immune system is lowered. We're not as good at fighting off flu viruses and COVID-19 and things like that. So the brain thinks, oh dear, I, I am in mortal danger from this virus or this infection. I must hyper-stimulate 
my defense responses, protective responses. So it overstimulates the nervous system and the immune system. But it starts doing that as a protective response so powerfully in such a magnified way that even once that COVID-19 has gone or the flu virus has gone or the infection has gone or that pain has gone, the brain is left a legacy in the brain where the brain has learned, right, from now on, anything that reminds me of that original sensitizing event, I must hyperstimulate immune and nervous system responses. And we know that these responses are over the top in many of these conditions that's been proven time and time again, which then causes this vicious cycle. So I believe there's some brain structures, the amygdala and insula, where this trauma actually occurs and the hippocampus shrinks, and we've seen that in, in brain scans. What is, just very quick question for everyone who doesn't know, what is the amygdala and what is the hippocampus? Sure, so um, the amygdala, there's two almond-shaped structures in our brain that sit behind our eyes, mm -hmm. and the amygdala's job is to, well, one of the jobs is to protect us from danger and to stimulate not only fear responses, but also Uh, protective responses that are, can be involved the immune system and the nervous system as well. And the insula is a little brain structure that sits outside the limbic system. It sits between the limbic system and the, the cortex. It's part of the cortex. And its job is to take in all incoming stimuli from the body, assess the threats, and create appropriate autonomic and immunological responses. So they're basically our alarm system in the brain. Exactly, exactly. They have many functions, but that, that's definitely one of them is like the smoke alarm in the brain. As soon as there's Look at that, fire, like that. <laughs> the smoke alarm uh, triggers. Mm -hmm. And the hippocampus often is involved in short-term memory. So the hippocampus gives us context. Okay, we've experienced this symptom or this chemical. What does that mean? And some of that meaning is stored in the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. So at number four, so once we have a combination of all of these different things and a legacy has been left in the brain, the brain has learnt a new response. This creates chronic sympathetic arousal, which basically means overstimulation of our stress system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And many patients, I'm sure who are listening, they can feel that, right? You can feel that wired but tired feeling or that pain in the body. There's immune dysfunction, so stimulation of the immune system. HPA abnormalities, so hypothalamus pituitary adrenal gland abnormalities with overstimulation of the adrenals. What Oxidative is that? <laughs> oh, okay, so HPA. I'm going to stop yes. you a lot so that it's really like as easy to understand as possible. I hope that's okay. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right to stop me because I, assume, you know, I've been so involved in this, I get so excited. <laughs> I kind of assume everyone understands it. So the HPA axis is essentially our sympathetic, what, or one of the channels via which our stress system gets stimulated. Mm -hmm. So we've all heard of adrenaline. Adrenaline is a hormone that runs through our body and gives the message to our muscles to tighten and increases our heart rate and sweating and essentially gets us ready for action. Yep, so that's the HPA axis. That's what triggers the adrenals. Yeah. And oxidative stress uh, is essentially uh, a chemical reaction in the body. I won't go too deeply into that because that mm -hmm. also is it's not worth going into right now. And that then causes the symptoms at six. So at number six, what are the symptoms? Muscle dysfunction, pain, cognitive difficulties, sleep issues, autonomic dysfunction. We all know those, those list of symptoms, IBS, mm. post-exertional malaise. And in um, fibromyalgia, there tends to be more of an emphasis on pain. And in chronic fatigue, there's often more of a, or ME, more of an emphasis on the deep exhaustion. But there's many crossovers, obviously, between the two conditions. Yeah. 
And then at number seven, there can be secondary cycles. So adrenal exhaustion. Once again, those adrenal glands can no longer respond and give the energy that the body needs. Mitochondria dysfunction. So mitochondria are the small little structures within cells that create energy, mm-hmm. essentially, and facilitate a lot of the, the kind of intracellular processes. And they, we find, we notice that they aren't functioning correctly. They're not creating enough energy. Um, uh, nitric oxide increase, wouldn't worry too much about that. Latent virus reactivation. So we, we know in the blood work of people with ME-CFS, certainly, there's a lot of opportunistic viruses and infections that are in their blood. Yeah. And allergies and sensitivities and sen- uh, you know reactions increase. So food sensitivities, sensitivities to light, to sound, to people. <laughs> we find certain people very stressful. And it is not this... necessarily always down to M- to ME though. <laughs> yes, of course, that could be that could be any of us. <laughs> yeah. um, and that then leads to more symptoms at number six, mm-hmm. because we've now got a very hypersensitive brain. The brain takes in those incoming symptoms from the body and magnifies those signals, sends it into the limbic system in the brain and says, we're in danger, we're in danger. Look at all these symptoms. We must still be back in time when we first got that COVID-19, we first got that flu virus, we first experienced pain. Oh dear, that was a a situation which threatened survival. Mm. We're still in that situation, quick overstimulate the nervous system and the immune system mm. to hyperprotect. So then we get round and around we go in this vicious cycle. And the reason people have fibromyalgia and ME-CFS for so many years, if not decades sometimes, is because in the system, the output of the system and the input of the system have got linked together. So it becomes yeah. a self-perpetuating um, illness where the brain has got stuck in a process where it thinks it's ensuring survival. And this is a beautifully demonstrated here that the brain with the best intentions can make mistakes. Yeah. Because it gets stuck in old ways of doing things. It becomes what we call conditioned or learnt response. And when they've done animal studies, um, they found that um, they take some rats and they give them sweet water and an immunosuppressant. Yeah. So what happens? the immune system goes down. They repeat that process four or five times. Each time the rat's immune system goes down. Then they give the rats just sweet water without the immunosuppressant. And guess what happens? The rat's immune system goes down even though there's no immunosuppressant anymore. It's just a placebo, it's just sweet water. And when they dissect the brains, they find that the core conditioning, the learning has occurred in the amygdala and in the insula, or at least it's facilitated by the, uh, the amygdala. So that is fascinating research that the conditioning of the immune system is in these brain structures. And you know, for us, it was always a hypothesis, but now it's been proven in some of these animal studies as well, which is really fascinating. Yeah. So once the I mean, system is- The entire conditioning, like, I mean, you, we see that in so many other things because conditioning is actually, as you said, also, also good for survival on, in every layer. Like we learn, don't touch the hot oven because you're going to burn your fingers. But if that translates into a fear of the oven, you start to have an issue because you can't cook anymore. Um, so, or like you had an abusive relationship and you end up in the same cycle again until you learn how to break out of it. So I think like these patterns, these coping mechanisms with life, you can find in very other ways as well. So it's actually not so much a surprise that our brain does that in, in a cycle of symptomatic reoccurrence as well. 
Yeah, Sophie, that's a really some really good examples there. Absolutely agree with you. And that's why this idea that those things that you've talked about are psychological, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense because actually, why wouldn't the brain also respond in this way when we're under physiological threat? Yeah. And I, I want to be this is clear, this isn't a, this isn't PTSD. This is not post-traumatic stress disorder, but it certainly um, has little crossovers in terms of this a traumatic protective response as a result of a traumatic experience that becomes chronic in the brain. And once the brain learns this, you have to retrain the brain out of a survival response, which if I could do in one second, I would give everyone the secret and say, right, this is how you do it. (laughs) But it requires repetition and persistence to get the brain out of these old grooves. And there is a program for it (laughs) now. That's yours, right? <laughs> so how does it all work? Now I'm terribly curious to figure out how, how people can do that. <laughs> of course, yes. So um, the first p- point of call is, once again, reinforcing that this is physiological and therefore we treat it in a physiological way. But the brain has a safety valve where it will give certain signals to the conscious brain that we are in danger, something needs to be done about this. Mm -hmm. Which is why, if you speak to many patients with fibromyalgia and MECFS, and I don't know if you experience this, we can sometimes feel that we are on high alert as if we are in danger. And we can certainly feel like we don't feel positive. It's hard to feel positive because some of those brain chemicals like serotonin and dopamine, all these good feel-good chemicals have been lowered in the brain. So the brain is constantly telling us that we are in that that kind of state of danger. Mm-hmm. And brain retraining is all about teaching people to recognize what are deep unconscious signaling that normally we don't do anything about or we can't do anything about and how we can retrain the brain or rehabilitate the brain to no longer trigger protective responses, the immune system and nervous system. So that is the core of the retraining. And there are three aspects that what we call the three R's of the Gupta program. Mm-hmm. So number one is retraining the brain. So there we use specialized neuroplasticity techniques that we've custom developed for these conditions. We spent mm-hmm. 25 or 20, probably 20 years refining these techniques to, to get to what we think works for most people most of the time. Um, and then there's some other, there's quite a few different retraining techniques. And then we have the second R of the Gupta program, which is relaxing the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So we know from neuroplasticity research that the calmer the mind is, the easier it is for it to retrain. And so there are specialized techniques that we have to be able to calm the nervous system. And it's holistic. So we do look at diet and activity and sleep and all of these different things that can support retraining. Yeah, But these are all supportive. And the third R is re-engaging with joy, which is mm-hmm. actually for us to heal, um, engaging in the small bits of things that actually make us happy that bring us joy is an important part of healing yeah to move the body in a positive direction to move the mind in a positive direction and this isn't just positive thinking but it's actually active engagement of the prefrontal cortex in activities that uplift it and strengthen the prefrontal cortex so that it can't be hijacked so our conscious mind can't be hijacked by these limbic structures and so all three of these things work together to support the brain retraining, which is the first R, and to bring the body back to balance. And normally this process, uh, on average, takes between three to six months. 
Uh, it can take shorter. It can take shorter time. Sometimes within weeks, uh, yeah. patients get to 70, 80%. But we don't want people to become complacent. So we say, look, whatever happens, even if you get better in a few months, this is a six-month commitment to make sure yeah. that you get well and stay well. Yeah. It's interesting because the elements you just said is pretty much how I healed myself as well, just not in that order. Like for me, I managed to have a good diet. I managed to be happy and to kind of be engaging in my life. I also managed to fake that I'm I'm actually fine and healthy by having a, a lifestyle that allowed me to have like way too many naps in a day because I realized I want to be part of society and that's hard when you're actually not well. But then the last thing I needed was actually a heart reset for my entire body, which I, in that case, did with a shamanic healing um, to reset the nervous system. But I learned that it is the nervous system through an osteopath because he stimulated it. And afterwards, I felt for the first time in 24 years that actually what means relaxation. I hadn't, I didn't know. I didn't even know that I was so tense until I could feel the opposite. So that was quite interesting. So um, when, what would you say, like, Is it necessary that you have to reach, you have to be, do you have to be willing to be healthy? Do you first need to go through layers of like maybe the depression or like the mistrust or anything that you potentially build up? Or would you say it doesn't matter even if you're the most skeptic person, you're really fed up with programs and doctors, give this a go. It will still help. What do you say to that? I would say give it a go. And the reason is, is that we are used to all of those different resistances that people have. <laughs> oh, this isn't going to work. Oh, you're saying it's in the mind. Oh, but the doctors told me that this is what's going on in my body. Mm. We've heard all of that. And we say, okay, you may believe all of that, but the mainstream medical profession hasn't been able to help you. So now here's an opportunity to suspend your skepticism for six months, come on this program, do this program. And we have now the medical research to back it up. Mm. And if it doesn't help you, you can return it and get your money back. So you've got That's nothing to great. lose by, by, by really giving it a go. And, you know, that is the point. If anything we've achieved in life, we have to suspend our skepticism. So if, if somebody is going to go into a new relationship or somebody's going to start a new business, yeah, if we listen to our fears right now, we, those things would never happen. We'd stay in our comfort zone. We'd stay restricted. So anything that anyone's ever achieved has required a vision and a belief mm -hmm. to say, okay, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to do this, even if I'm skeptical um, about it. I like so that a the lot. Same way, you know, uh, this is something that we truly believe can help so many people mm -hmm. if they just open their mind to it. And when you say six months program, when I Googled a little bit around what people say about your program, some people said it is a bit full on. So would you say you have to have six months basically off? You need to be able to not work and just focus on the program. Or is there a way to say like, okay, you still have to work, do it in 12 months. Is there flexibility or is it set and it only works if you do it within that time and you, with your full focus? Um, it's, it's very flexible. So mm -hmm. we have people who are working full time who are still able to engage in the Gupta program. Oh, and we vary the tools according to what you need. Now, of course, if somebody's going to say, I want to prioritize everything else in my life before I prioritize my health, then of course it's going to be challenging. Yeah. But look, you know, finding a time in the day where you can take 20 minutes out to meditate, I don't feel is a big ask, right? Or making sure that during the day you recognize these signals and you use our specialized processes, uh, some of which can take you know, 10, 20 seconds. That's not a big ask. So if people are committed to it, no matter their lifestyle, we believe that they can successfully retrain. Mm. At the same time, there is a caveat, which is, look, if somebody is in a really stressful job, right? Let's say 
I don't know, they're a, a, a you know an investment banker working 100 hours a week, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're not going to recover from this condition yeah. in that kind of stressful environment. So certainly, it is beneficial to come onto the program and what is within a reasonable context, reduce as many commitments and as many stressful situations so you can put some investment of time in the program but this is investment in our health i mean what could be more important than this uh you know and sometimes we we put our health last and we say right i'll get everything done first and then i'll look after my health but if we look after our health first then everything else in life becomes easier yeah I did an episode on inner walk, like walking meditation. And um, Fluke, the person I talked to, he said, like, if you don't have t- time for 20 minutes of meditation a day, take an hour. <laughs> <laughs> really, I really like that. Yes. Yes. Because if you're it's exactly right. If you're saying to someone, I don't have time, I don't have time. Clearly, you are overstressed. You're too engaged in the world. Yeah. Therefore, you need to make it more. I love that. Love yeah. it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it's very interesting what you say. Um, yeah, besides that, that was basically the only criticism I found online about your program, by the way, that it is a bit full on. Other than that, I read amazing, amazing feedback from people who said like this really reduced their symptoms and like also the pain severity. And I find that quite interesting because like in fibromyalgia, there are so many ideas of what you can do, but none of them actually reduce the pain. It almost sounds like they're all just management tools and like how you live with a condition. So I find it really fascinating that in six months, I, I wish I would have known that. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. absolutely. And as I said, with pain, sometimes within weeks, um, the pain levels can come down. And as you know, we've just published that study on fibromyalgia. Yes. Um, so we just published uh, a randomized controlled trial uh, in late 2020, um, which took two groups of patients. One group of patients took relaxation techniques and an equivalent amount of time using the Gupta program. And just after eight weeks in the control group, there was no difference in uh, fibromyalgia scores and pain, or there's a slight difference in pain. But with the active group, there was a 40% reduction or close to a 40% reduction in fibro scores and almost a halving of pain. Yeah. And also a halving of anxiety, a halving of depression and a 50% increase in functional abilities. Yeah, which is unheard of in eight weeks. And obviously we're a six month program. So we would assume the longer we do it, uh, the better better results that people will get. And the reason for this, and this is why it seems so astounding to people is when we take drugs or we take some other artificial thing to try and reduce pain, what we're doing is we are not affecting the pain system. We are numbing the pain system. Mm -hmm. There's a difference. So we're numbing the pain networks. Yep which would, you know, temporarily reduces the pain. And it, but even then, we know that a lot of uh, pain medication in fibromyalgia doesn't really work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I never had any effect of any painkillers. Quite the opposite. Still today, I'm actually quite resistant against medication as well as anesthetics. I just don't have an effect from them. Yeah. Um, whereas actually what we're doing in brain retraining is we're altering the very circuitry of the pain system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the pain system itself has got stuck in a vicious cycle, it's become hypersensitive, yeah. peripherally and centrally. So there's peripheral sensitization, there's central sensitization. And actually, it beca- it's self-perpetuating. It, the more it detects pain, the more it keeps yeah. magnifying and becoming sensitive. But when we slow that process down, eventually the nerves heal, that sensitivity begins to heal. Mm-hmm. And uh, the system says, actually, maybe we're not in so much danger. Maybe we can calm these 
uh, triggering systems down. We can lower inflammation in the body and the brain. And gradually, gradually, we get to a reset of the of the system because yeah. we're going to the root cause rather than managing the symptoms. I have a question about the inflammation you just mentioned because in your study in this eight weeks there was not a difference in the into in, in the inflammatory biomarkers. So the inflammation didn't seem to have changed in eight weeks. Did you test it after the six months? Do you know if it's just a matter of time that the body needs longer to reduce the inflammation or is that um, yet to be determined what happens with those? And why is the pain reducing if the inflammation isn't quite yet reducing? Sure. No, it's a really good question. So what we do know is that in those inflammatory markers, they are not pure uh, diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. So there's been studies where actually in fibromyalgia patients, even those inflammatory markers themselves are not necessarily statistically significant or not that statistically significant. Mm -hmm. So um, what happened was in the study, in the control group, there was no difference in those inflammatory markers. In the Gupta program group, the inflammatory markers did come down, mm -hmm. but they didn't come down to a significant yeah. enough level for the study itself and the power of the study. But they certainly did lower. Mm -hmm. And so in our view, um, those inflammatory markers are perhaps little clues, but aren't definitive testing. But what did change was BDNF. Now that's more of a diagnostic marker for fibromyalgia. So BDNF is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, mm -hmm. just a brain chemical essentially. <laughs> and uh, ironically encourages neuroplasticity. So we know in fibromyalgia that those BDNF levels are elevated. Mm -hmm. And in the control group, there was no change in BDNF for those people. But in the active group, the Gupta program group, there was a significant reduction in BDNF, which approached normalized controls. So mm -hmm. there we have an objective criteria that says, actually, uh, this wasn't just a subjective change, this was an objective change that we can measure. And I think that's more of a marker than the than the inflammatory markers. Yeah, absolutely. So mm. what is what am I roughly expecting if I'm saying, okay, I would do the Gupta program? What what is the ride roughly in those six months? <laughs> well, hopefully not a rough ride. <laughs> so we, we make it a really gentle ride. It is we hold people's hands step by step. It's a gentle program. And look, there are other programs out there that you know came after us who um, let's just say it's more of a boot camp approach where it's right. This is what you need to do. Don't worry about pacing. Just do this again and again and again, and you'll get better. Yeah. And it works for some people, but others, it kind of almost overstimulates the system too much. Yeah. So it has to be done with the compassion and self-love. So our process starts off gently in those three R's, giving people the tools to be able to calm the whole nervous system, which goes on to then calm um, pain. So we know the calmer the system, the more pain begins to reduce as well. And then the brain is ready to retrain. And then you watch these interactive videos. They're, they're shot in Switzerland. So uh, beautiful vistas, very relaxing. Nice. <laughs> um, and it teaches you to recognize the signaling and to repetitively retrain. Because your brain isn't going to get the message first time. You can take mm -hmm. repeated messages to tell your brain that you aren't in danger. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so all of those processes are there. And also we want people to stay well, to get well and stay well. So what's important is not only do people um, retrain, but they understand what caused the condition in the first place, what types of um, behaviors, what types of stresses and strains or not giving myself rest did I engage in 
before I got unwell. And this is where we talk about the idea of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Mm -hmm. So imagine before the condition, we are like the caterpillar. And then we go into a cocoon. And the illness, fibromyalgia, ME, they are like a cocoon. And it feels like a cocoon when oh, we're yeah, in it. it. You know, we're separated from our normal life. And we want to treat that cocoon like an opportunity for learning, to learn more about ourselves and our bodies and how to indulge in self-care. Mm -hmm. And as we do that, as we grow and learn with the, pro the techniques in the Gupta program, gradually we develop wings. And the struggling out of that cocoon, the ability to get well, is the strengthening of the wings, learning about uh, self-pacing, learning about uh, learning to relax and not think, right, I need to be an achiever and do this and do this and be busy all the time and be involved in the outer world. We strengthen the wings of resilience and centeredness and um, understanding what our needs are. Yeah. And those wings become stronger, which enable us to break through the cocoon and then fly yeah. for the rest of our lives. Well, that's a beautiful analogy. I really like that. So it is all online. I'm just going to do an online program. Am I ever having interactions directly with you or with any of the people who could train me? Or how, how would that work? Uh, yes. Yeah. So when people get the program, um, they get access to the online videos. And mm -hmm. in the post, they get a manual and a floor chart. So those are things that come in the post as well to support the online videos and the videos there's 15 interactive video sessions there's about 30 audio exercises so there's tons of materials and um we also have weekly webinars with myself so when people purchase the package every three months we have a webinar series so every week you feel like your hands being held and you're getting support through that and we also have a very active and loving uh, support group uh, there's mm -hmm. 3,000 people on there now all giving people each other support and you can find buddies going to help you retrain nice. on top of that we have about 20 to 30 coaches around the world mm -hmm. uh, which we've trained in these how to support people through healing and they can see people face to face obviously not during covid but they can yep. see people face to face <laughs> and on the phone and um, uh, on skype so uh, that means that if people need extra support and help they can they can mm -hmm. get that help and obviously until we get the large phase three trial results where we test this on hundreds of patients until that point in time we give a one-year money-back guarantee no questions asked if you, if you want to return it within a year we can return it and, and get your money back that's great what i really like about that is that it just cuts out all waiting times because even if you could get face-to-face -face help with like gps let's say just the, the time it takes for you to get an appointment can be insane so that's what i like about that so much that it's something immediate i don't have to wait i can just like start and take my own health in my own hands and i think that's really beautiful about it yeah yeah exactly and that's why we call it a retraining program it's not a therapy program it's not um, someone telling you what to do it's a training program where we are empowering the individual to train themselves and learn how to be well And that is such a, a kind of a shift in the zeitgeist about how we think about help and support. Yeah. Because that's what we want people to do, because you're not always going to have a therapist or someone around you to tell you what to do. Yeah. We need to understand our bodies, what makes us unwell, what makes us well. And once we're healed, how we can stay well. So that's why it's a training program, really. Yeah, that's brilliant. Amazing. Is there anything else you feel we need to talk about before we wrap up this beautiful episode? Because I think like we covered quite a lot. So, But is there anything we miss? Yeah, I just want to give people that hope and inspiration that, um, you know, whether you use our program or use something else to get well, that 
please don't listen to the, the naysayers who say, oh, there's no way out of this. You're never going to get better. So many people get better in so many different ways. And you're living proof of that. And I'm living proof of that. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's keeping up that that positivity, trying different things and saying, I will get better. It is my birthright to have health and wellness in my body. And that hopefully from what we've described today, there's a bit of relief that, oh, there's a perfectly logical and rational explanation that fits the data that explains what I'm experiencing. This isn't this mysterious illness that nobody can figure out. It's, you know, so many more doctors and researchers now are looking at the way that we're looking at it and thinking, yes, this is a viable explanation for what's going on difficult to absolutely prove because it's the black box of the brain but yes yeah, so so really just that inspiration to keep going you can get well i truly believe that everybody deserves that and the good news as you said this study was just published last year so this is just the start of probably much bigger explorations and much more forward movement in healing all those conditions yeah absolutely all right That was absolutely inspiring. I'm going to make sure that all the links to your program and to your website and whatever else you want in the description is going to be added so that people have a chance to find you. And then I'm just really hoping that everyone who's watching this is giving this a shot and that it helps many people. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching the episode with Ashok. I truly hope that you found some inspiration in this episode. I surely did. I really wish I would have known about this program when I was still ill, but I got through it anyway, so yay. <laughs> and hopefully this can really help you to get better. And as you heard it, there is a money back guarantee, even if you are super critical, as I surely would have been when I was still ill, I was like really unpleasant patient. Just give it a go. The worst thing that happens is that it is not for you, but at least you can get your money back. So in the description, is all you need to know to find his program and to find out how you can sign up. Also, if you have any thoughts, comments about this episode or about any of my episodes, please drop me a line, write a comment. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any topics you think that would be amazing for me to cover, like let me know and I'm going to see what I can do. Until then, have a good day. <laughs>